0: just saying you are the beautiful name, the powerful name, the very name, who you are, your reputation. God, is based on the power that you have displayed and the love that you would love us so much that you would die for us and you would be able to rise from the grave and tear the veil that that was separated us and you. And if that's who you are, God, then how much more can we trust you with the burdens and the things that are on our hearts and our minds right now? So, God, we, we just want to breathe those things out. that We might then breathe in all that you are and, and your truth about us. I mean, if you even feel like it right now, I would even encourage you just to breathe out whatever it is that's weighing on you. It could be the bitterness that you're feeling or resentment towards somebody. It could be uh, just the sadness or the worry or the anxiety that you're carrying. It could be something that somebody spoke over to you that was damaging. It could be uh, the news story you saw this morning that's worrying you. Whatever it might be, just breathe that out. And in doing so, in response, breathe in His peace, His joy his love for you and love for others, his forgiveness, his grace. Lord, that we are here to lay it all down because we know you can handle it. That we are carrying a lot of us burdens that are, we were never meant to carry. Things we're trying to control that we never were meant to try to control. And so we give all that to you. And in turn, we receive all that you are. Thank you, God, that we can come before you to worship. But it's not an anxious thing. It's where we settle into resting in who you are. That you allow our minds, our hearts, even our physical bodies to rest. Because we know it doesn't all depend on us. That you are the almighty God who loves us and sees us and goes ahead of us. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Woo, God is good. All the time. time. He's good. And it's good to be with you guys. uh, To be worshiping with you, seeing your faces, uh, being a part of celebrating our God together. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to the the Caldwells for for sharing your story. It's so encouraging. And and what what an encouragement. Yeah. And, you know, my takeaway is what an encouragement it is to us that we have so much brokenness in our own backyard too. Spiritual, physical, uh, relational brokenness. And that God has called us to rebuild here as well as sending us to these places. And so... May God lead us and show us what that looks like as a church consistently. But before we uh, jump in today, how many of you know or have heard of the movie Cinderella Man? Anybody? All right, we got a couple people. All right. So, so this movie came, back, came out in 2005, and it's based on the, the true story uh, of, of this boxing legend in the 1920s and 30s from North Bergen, New Jersey, named James J. Braddock. Maybe so this is ringing a bell now. That right before the Great Depression, Braddock, played by the Russell Crowe here, uh, had a promising fighting career. But all of that was cut short when his hand got severely injured. And at the same time, the, the depression was hitting, which meant that he no longer had the income of boxing, and he had to, his family fell into poverty, and he was basically just making ends meet working at the docks as a longshoreman, but had to rely on social assistance just to feed his wife and his kids. But one day, one day, he finally got an opportunity to fight again. And with his wife and his kids in mind, he started making this big comeback to the point where in 1935, he was given a showdown uh, between the world, him and the world heavyweight champion Max Baer. Max Baer. Now, Max Baer, he, he was notorious for, for being a dirty fighter. Like, there's even a couple of his opponents who died in the ring. True story. And so he, he, was, he was just a dirty dude. Um, but leading up to the fight, Bear ridiculed, threatened, mocked Braddock however he could. And then came the day of the fight. And moments before the fight began, Braddock was underneath the arena in his locker room getting ready. And then his wife, May, stepped into the room, played by the Renee Zellweger. As, as she stepped into the room, the look on her face told Braddock's agent he, wasn't, he needed to get up out. So he got out. And there's a scene that, that still gives me chills that, that May steps up to her husband. And she locks her eyes with his. And she says over him, you just remember who you are. You are the bulldog of Bergen and the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. And you are your kid's hero. And you are the champion of my heart, James J. Braddock. Didn't that give you chills? (laughs) Now, spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear, close your ears, okay? (laughs) Spoiler alert. Braddock won the fight. And I got to say that to you. I got to spoil the ending. Because to make the point here that May knew exactly what her husband needed. That before he was stepping into this arena, he needed to remember who he was. And in the spiritual battles we face, this is no less true for us. It's especially true because our enemy, God's enemy, fights dirty. And he too makes it personal. And that the very thing he often goes after is our identity and who we are. So as we get back into the series called The Armor of God, we've been slowly unpacking the end of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And in it he lays out that we're in a fight too. A spiritual one. And if we belong to Christ, God's enemy is not happy about that. That Satan, the devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, he's not just this cute little red guy that you see around this time of year leading up to Halloween. No, he is real. And he's, a, he's an evil spiritual being who has been determined from the beginning to demolish God's work and paralyze God's people. And so Paul urges us in this letter, don't just ignore this, but understand how to stand Firm. And while the devil may be stronger than us, he's not stronger than our Lord. And if we belong to Jesus, we've been given his spiritual equipment to stand firm. And so these last few weeks, we've been unpacking that one at a time. Like, what does this mean? And how do we live into this? How do you put this stuff on? And today, we'll be looking at the final two parts of that, the helmet and the sword. And as I hope we'll see here soon, is that these parts of Christ's armor are especially important when the battle gets up close and personal. And they are directly related to our identity and authority as followers of Jesus. So let's open up. Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 20 again. If you want to read... Bible in front of you, grab the Blue Bibles, page 950, or you can follow on the screen. But I'm going to be reading the whole thing, but focusing on verse 17 today, asking this question, why does God's enemy insist on making this so personal? Why does he go after our identity? But then, instead of quitting or falling down, how do we put on the helmet, take out the sword, and stand firm? Ephesians 6, verse 10. You guys ready? To stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist Pray also for me, this is Paul again, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Lord, will you give our minds the ability to understand what you're saying to us, our hearts, fill them with your love and your, not only to understand your love for us, but to, that we might love one another and others like you do, equip our hands for the work that you've called us to do, and may our feet walk in your path. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. A while back, uh, one of our Sunday school classes, I uh, got somehow on the topic of Satan and the devil. And one girl in the class innocently raised her hand, or raised her hand and innocently asked, She said, What if the devil's not really evil? What if he's just misunderstood? I, thought, I mean, I love that compassionate heart. I love that compassionate heart. But, but Scripture says, don't be fooled. He is only evil. He never works for our good. He has no moral compass or ethics. He only fights dirty. And when it comes to you and me, God's enemy has no problem making the battle up close and personal. Last week, we looked at the shield of faith and talked about the flaming arrows of the evil one. You remember that, right? That come at us from a distance to try to keep us from taking steps forward in faith. Well, at times, that's how the battle works. But sometimes it gets up close and personal, becomes hand-to-hand combat. And that's when the enemy gets up close and personal. And what do I mean by that? He goes after who we are, our identity. See, our identity is the thing that is most important about us. I realize I didn't word that well. Our identity is the thing that is most important thing about us. You got it, what I'm saying right, right? Our identity, our true identity, is what gives us inherent worth and value. Well, let me explain that a little bit more. Let me give some context and background to help us better understand. Because in the very beginning, When God spoke humans into being, how did he ID, how did he identify us differently from the rest? Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. See, at the start, God ID'd us, identified us as image bearers. Meaning that we are to to find our inherent value in who God says we are, and that just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, we are to reflect God. If you want to know who you are, God says we find that in relation to who God is. Guess, tracking with me that before you've done anything, Before you've accumulated any wealth, before you started a family, or you've accomplished enough to earn your own Wikipedia page, (laughs) the most important thing about us, what gives us value, is who God says we are. But let me flip that around, though. Because therefore, when we reject God, when we sin against God, we're not just rejecting Him. We're rejecting and forgetting who we are. Sin doesn't take away our inherent value. That's something God gives. But when we turn away from God, when we reject him, we're actually choosing to identify with something or someone else other than him. We don't come up with our identity in a vacuum by ourselves. It's always in relation to something. And when we don't know who we are in relation to God, we look for who we are. We try to identify ourselves with our wealth, with our talent, with our families, with our culture, with our accomplishments. Many good things, but not our identity. That instead of imaging the vibrant color of God's glory, sin leaves us blindly looking outside of God for who we are. I've done it. We've all done it. But when we were in the dark searching for our identity, Jesus came to rescue us from sin's curse and restore to us our God-given identity. See, when sin enslaved us in its condemning grip of guilt, Jesus gave his life as a ransom to liberate and redeem us that we might be his. That's why Paul started his letter to the Ephesians laying all of this out. When he said, In him we have redemption or freedom through his blood. That Jesus was God in the flesh, that he became as one of us. Why? So that we could in turn identify as one of his. This means. The moment you receive the gift of God's grace by faith, receiving what Christ has done on your behalf, we are no longer identified by our sin, but, by, but as free, forgiven people. We're no longer identified as orphans, but as children of God. We're no longer belong to the darkness, but to the kingdom of Christ, Paul said in Colossians 1. And see, this is what it means to be saved, that we've been rescued from sin. So we might discover again our identity in relation, in a relationship with our God. That because of what Christ has done, we identify with him. You guys tracking with me? Everybody, I'm going someplace with this, okay? Trust me, I'm going someplace with this. But we identify with him. And the reason why this is incredible news is because to identify with Christ, that's an identity that no one can take from you. It is eternal. It is unchanging. Wealth comes and goes. Talents come for a season, then they're gone. Opportunity, Wikipedia page, who cares, right? But ultimately, who you are in Christ is something that is ours forever. And it is sealed in the finished work of Jesus. And no one, Satan included, can take that away from you. But that certainly doesn't keep God's enemy from trying to Think that he's taking it from us. God's enemy still tries to lie about who we are when he tries to confuse our identity. Because Jesus gave us a new identity, Satan can't steal it. But he certainly works like Max Bayer did to taunt, ridicule, mock us to convince us that we're still our old selves. Because truth is, when we realize. All we are and all we've been given in Christ, Jesus said, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's people. Did you guys catch that? Even the gates of hell cannot prevail if we know who we are. For that reason, Satan is terrified when we are secure in who we are. So therefore, he tries to convince us to identify with our old selves so that we won't walk in our new identity. How does he do that? Well, he whispers things like this. You're still unworthy. You're unforgivable. Why would God forgive you knowing all the things that you've done? You ever had those times when you're sitting there minding your own business and all of a sudden, like these old tapes start playing through your head, reminding you of shameful things you've done, people you've hurt, convictions that you've gone against? That's often him trying to convince us, you see, you're still unworthy. And when we start to, to believe these things and hold on to those things, we start feeling like, oh man, I always have to do more to prove myself. I have to do more to earn God's love. I have to do more to be enough. Or he jeers at us saying, you're unlovable, undesirable unknown. You are one in eight billion people on this planet. You think God actually cares about you? And then he jabs right at wounds, past wounds, people that we've loved and respected, who have rejected, abused, mistreated us, saying, see, see? Unlovable. And when we buy that, we start Looking everywhere, like, can you give me unconditional love? Can you give me unconditional love? Can you? We start trying to find our identity in relation to others. Or he mocks us, saying, You're incapable, insignificant, a genetic mistake compared to others. What have you done? You have no real purpose. And then he starts bringing to our cycling through our minds all the successes that other people have had until we we feel somewhat jealous and, and discontent and eventually starting to hate ourselves and how God made us. And when we bite that lie, we're always trying to prove ourselves to other people because we feel like who we are depends on what we do. Thus, even though we've been made new in Christ, God's enemy gets personal when he tries to convince us that that that's not enough. But Paul says, we've been given armor for these up-close and personal attacks. First, how does the helmet of salvation equip us here? What's its purpose? Well, when God's enemy attacks our identity, our helmet reminds us of our heavenly rank. So I like to imagine the scene. Most likely when Paul was writing the letter of Ephesians, he is on house arrest, under house arrest in Rome and chained to a Roman officer. And I, I can imagine as he's writing this letter to them, he's kind of looking over this guy. Like, hey man, what does that breastplate do? Tell me about that belt thing. Like, like what, what, what does that do? What, what, can you, how do those shoes work? And imagine by the time he gets to the helmet, he's like, what's that helmet thing? Like, like how, how does that whole thing work? And I can, I can see the Roman soldier picking up his helmet with a bit of pride and honor. Because the helmet didn't just protect the soldier's head. The helmet normally had some sort of decor on top, a little plumage, right? Right there on top. And it signified his rank, his status in the Roman military. The helmet... Told others of his value as he identified with Caesar. You guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah, you know exactly where I'm going with this. What what is salvation? Salvation is about more than our future destiny, but our new present identity. That see the word salvation often gets reduced to just where we go when we die. You know, heaven or hell, but it's so much richer than that. Because when Christ died and removed that barrier of sin between us and God, He didn't just secure a future destiny, but a new identity. That He rescued us from sin's grip, not just to call us servants, but His children. His children. And that's what Paul laid out in the beginning of this letter. He says, in love, God predestined us. It was part of his plan that we'd be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He says, because that's the way God wanted it. And later on, he says, if you're children, then it makes sense that you would also have an inheritance. That you would be secure because you are his child. That Christ could have called us employees or slaves, or servants, I don't know, know, nieces or nephews, right? But instead, he gave us the identity of what? Son and daughter. And so if you have trusted in Christ, if you placed your faith in him, he has given you his helmet of family. And there is no higher, no closer rank to God than that. And what's interesting to me is that for Roman soldiers, in order for them to get that helmet, they had to actually pay for it themselves. And it was not cheap. But our identity before Christ is only a gift of his grace because of what he has paid for us. And so before God's enemy gets personal, makes the battle personal. It's vital that we put on the helmet of our identity. And this is exactly what Jesus exemplified for us. That before he went into the wilderness to face his own battle against Satan, he was first baptized. And as he came out of that water, this voice of heaven spoke over him, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What's being spoken over Jesus right there? Identity, yes. Exactly like Mae Braddock spoke over her husband. Remember who you are. So, what does putting on our helmet look like? It could look a bunch of different ways, but I would encourage us, it could look like going back to Ephesians chapters one, two, three, not long chapters, real short. Again, this whole book is only four pages. But going back there and underlining all those words that describe who you are in Christ. You are God's holy people. His chosen ones. His children and heirs. Redeemed and forgiven. God's masterpiece. Dwelling for his spirit. That's just some of the things it says. But by remembering who we are in Christ, it protects our minds from the enemy's deceptions. Right, that helmet was meant to protect their brains and the brains controlled their body. Well, remembering our identity protects our minds and our minds are the very gateway to our souls. And Paul confirms that in other places. He says in Romans 12 too, he says, listen, you wanna be like Jesus? All right, he says, then renew your mind, remind your mind of the truth of who our God is and who you are. And as we do, God's words of love and identity repel those voices of unworthy, unlovable, insignificant. And he begins to repel all of that as he aligns our thinking with the very mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. But there's more. There's more because, see, when the battle gets personal, he doesn't just call us to repel or resist the enemy. He's actually given us a tool also to make him flee. Because when we know who we truly are, what else do we have? Well, when the lies of the evil one gets personal, we also have a weapon of authority. And that's God's word. And of all the parts of the armor that have been mentioned so far, this is the only offensive weapon. So, so, the, so the belt, the breastplate, the helmet, the shield, all defense, but the sword... This is for attack. And see, in fact, this sword, it was used just for up-close and personal battles. It was about 18 inches long, so it was more like a dagger. And it was made that way so that they could pull it out quick and use it quickly right when they saw the enemy. But it it was double-bladed, so it was was sharp on both sides and as sharp as a needle. even could pierce armor Sometimes, And Paul says, "We wield the words of God's spirit, God's word, like this in the spiritual battle." Because the gift of God's word, it is His weapon of light that pierces through the darkness." I mean, a lot of you guys have probably heard before Hebrews 4:12. That the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. These isn't just words on a page. It's not something that we just pull out to try to just make us feel a little better in the morning before we go about our day. Oh, it's way more than that. These are the very living words of God's Spirit, which he has gifted to us that we might expose the lies of the enemy with the light of his truth. And again, this is exactly how Jesus fought in the wilderness. And if that's how he did it, then we do it too. Because Matthew 4 tells the story of Jesus going into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. And though he was physically weak, The tempter comes to him, Satan himself, and he first says, If you are the Son of God, what's he going after? What's he going after? Identity, Identity. calling identity into question. If you are the Son of God, basically do a cool trick and feed your hungry self. (laughs) But how does Jesus respond? He doesn't reason with him. He doesn't theologically argue with him. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't try to negotiate with this terrorist. No, he only quotes God's word in response. And Satan comes at him again a second time, if you are. And Jesus responds the same way. And then he comes at him a third time. Jesus responds again with God's word. Until at the end of this story, I can imagine Satan retreats but feeling quite wounded. And so many times, and this is where it drives it home for me, I've been haunted by my own, those thoughts. You're a mistake. No one really loves you. You're unworthy. And my response oftentimes of those moments is I try to run from those things. I try to close my ears, distract myself with other things so I don't have to think about it. Or I try to work real hard to disprove them. But I'm only running. But we don't have to keep running anymore. Please hear this. We don't have to run from these things. One more time. We do not have to run. Because we've been given the very tool to stand firm, turn around, and face these things with the truth of God. And God's word even tells us. Resist and he will flee. And I know sometimes I get the response, man. It's easy for you to say, Pastor. Like you spend all your time studying the Bible. Right? I don't have that kind of time. You know what? There's some fairness in that. Right? Like there's some fairness in that. I get that. But let me say to that, like it's possible to know a whole lot about this, but never use it. Just as it's possible to know a little and still push back the dark. The real question is not what we know, but will we take authority with what we know? That's right. And plus, God's Word even says, we can trust, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that even when we do face those temptations, that God is faithful to always provide a way out. So wherever you are, wherever you start, wherever you are today, start there. One day at a time, getting to know his word in deeper ways. And as you start reading maybe a few verses or a chapter, pay attention to what stands out to you. And then write that verse down. Put it on a sticky, throw it on the dash of your car, put it on the mirror every morning. Look at it so it starts to become ingrained into you. Because that is a sword that God is handing you against the lies coming at you. In fact, again, start with Ephesians. Look at the first three chapters. And go through and highlight, underline, write down who it says you are. Do you know you have permission to write in your Bible? You can. But, But as you do so... Pay attention to which of these things just stand out of you. What catches your attention? What, what, what seems to leap off the page at you? Because most likely, that's God trying to speak something over you. He is showing you something and he's handing you a sword because he intends for you to use it. That is God's living word to you. So when the battle gets personal, remind yourself who you are and take out the sword of God's living word. One of my favorite shows or movies, I don't know why I'm on a movie kick today, but one of my favorite ones is uh, The Band of Brothers, right? You guys seen that awesome series about uh, follows a regiment in World War II based on the true stories of these men. And there's this one scene where they are are going to this regiment is going to be moved to the front line, the regiment of paratroopers, moved to the front line in the Battle of the Bulge, I believe. And one of the guys says, before they go, it says, it looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. And right away, one of the guys says, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And I thought about that, I thought, man... Many times we walk out as followers of Christ into this world and people tell us, oh, it's so dark out there. There's so many just lies being, it's a deception, it's, it's a scary place. But as followers of Christ in that moment, we don't have to run. We can stand firm and say, yeah, but we're children of God. We are the light that is meant to be for that darkness. Because when we know who we are, there is no lie that can come against us that God has not already equipped us to be able to stand firm against. We might need to lock arms with some other people in the process. We might need, if you we feel weak, or we feel tired, we might need to come around other people and say, man, help me see the truth here. But even though God, God you realize God has called us to this world, not from it. And if he calls to it, knowing that he's already equipped us, it's because of who we are that we can stand firm and we can be a picture of God's love, his truth, and his salvation for those who are so firmly blinded under all of these lies that we've mentioned already. So church, remember who you are. Let's stand up together if you are able. And Lord, I just want to speak over your people right now. God, thank you that you called us to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. That you've given us a helmet of identity that is always capable of withstanding anything that comes at us. Lord, and if anybody in here, I don't know what kind of things are being spoken over people, but Lord, I, I know the enemy is ruthless. And for those who... The word is often that they're unworthy. God, I pray that you speak over them right now that they are already called yours. They are your sons and daughters. For those who feel unlovable, God, I pray that they see that the length that you went through, the love that you have for them to call them your own. For those, God, who say, I feel insignificant, God, I pray that you show them that they are a dwelling of your Holy Spirit. They are your masterpiece, equipped to do your good work in this world. Lord, that we do not have to walk out of here afraid. But that we can stand firm knowing who we are and the authority that we've been given in Jesus. Give us fresh eyes, fresh faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.